and welcome to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival. My name is Andrew Eaton-Lewis, and in this series I'm talking to fascinating people from the worlds of astronomy, psychology and the arts about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with the Scotsman, and this year's festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader. Shona Urquhart spent her childhood in the highlands and islands of Scotland, gazing in wonder at the stars and the northern lights. Now, her work as an extragalactic astrophysicist has taken her all over the world, from Canada to Hawaii. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation, from the evolution of galaxies to her love of music and surfing, and her work on a new BBC science show with Brian Cox. But I began by asking Shona when she first realised she wanted to be an astronomer. It's a question that um, I get asked a lot, actually. I think most of us in astronomy do. I was pretty young. I think I was about four or five. Like, I think like most kids, I was always a bit fascinated by what was kind of going on in space and what was out there. And just I was kind of encouraged by my, my mum and dad, who neither of whom are scientists, I might add, um, but they were just always like, encouraging us to ask questions and yeah it just it intrigued me it intrigued me and then in terms of like actually oh well maybe I could try and do this for a living that probably came at high school um, mm-hmm. when I started studying physics and talking about careers and things like that but yeah I think the, the love and the interest is for me was there for from quite a young age yeah um, you've described the place you grew up in as uh, one of those houses where you have to travel for an hour to get a pint of milk <laughs> yeah um, yeah it was uh, quite wonderful so I grew up sort of based between two places, um, one sort of near the Cairngorms, which is ever so slightly more populated, and then one over on the west coast of Scotland, which people in Lewis will be quite familiar with this. Um, yeah, it was literally, it still is, actually, if you want to go, <laughs> it's my grand's house, and if you want to go and get anything, it's, it's a good hour's drive. And it, I mean, it was wonderful. It was absolutely idyllic, never mind from an astronomy point of view, but just, yeah, it was, it was quite marvellous. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I would imagine the skies would be very dark in a place like that. Unbelievable. And like I say, it's not, you know, I'm not going to give him my own age, but, you know, <clears throat> so many years later, it's uh, it's still like that. You, you step out and I've never, I mean, I've travelled all over the place and I don't think I've ever seen the Milky Way quite as spectacular as I've seen it there, which may be, you know, some sort of rose-tinted bias, but it is quite incredible. And that would have just felt quite normal to you as a child, right? Yep. Yep. Just out there. Sometimes I would go out with my granddad's old, I don't know if you've ever seen those military, like, from World War II binoculars and they must have been about half the size I was when I was a kid and they weighed a ton and I would go out there with those and I don't think my eyes were actually far enough apart to (laughs) to like see so it's like one eyepiece at a time and I would have to put them on my grand's shoulders to try and like keep them steady but yeah it was just step outside there's a nice guy very familiar. Um, You said that a fairly formative memory was that um, was seeing the northern lights and the way that your dad talked about the northern lights tell me about that. The Northern Lights, well, that's something that you never forget. So I, I've gone on a few sort of trips to see them mm. in the Arctic Circle and stuff. And I, I spent a long time living in Canada and I saw them there. But the first time I saw them was in Scotland. And it was it was over on the, the West Coast. And it made me realise why some of the legends and stuff came up and why people used to freak out about them and wonder what the heck was going on. Because it really is, it's quite disconcerting, actually, when the sky starts moving and doing all this weird stuff but it's it's burned in my memory I'll never forget it yeah and and what did your dad say about the northern lights how did he explain them to you (laughs) he wasn't really able to explain them in a sort of physicsy sense but I probably wasn't old enough to understand it anyway so subsequently I've had to take him out and explain it a fair few times about magnetic fields and all these types of very non-romantic things but he told me about the my dad is heavily into uh, history and things like that on a not on a professional level just on an interest level and so he was the one that started to tell me about all the sort of various legends from from all sorts of peoples and then the sort of everyone from the Norse and the and the Vikings to the Mayans to and then he mentioned the Aurora Australis which I had never even heard of at that point and have not seen I have to say sadly but um yeah, the whole Southern Hemisphere had it as well, which obviously when you start studying it makes sense. But mm-hmm. as a kid, I was just, just blew my mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in 
this idea that your interest in astronomy kind of developed alongside your interest in myths and legends and one kind of informed the other. So um, when you were looking at the stars, I mean, did you, as a child, do you remember your family saying, telling you particular stories that kind of stuck with you? I mean, they would tell me the stuff about, a lot of the stuff about the constellations. Hmm. Um, and again, as a kid, I couldn't quite get my head around how, like that looked like a bear or that looked like a, you know, a dog or something like I couldn't quite imagine that and so I did a little bit of reading on the on how these sort of myths and things came about but I find it quite a I'm not a particular I don't romanticize astronomy now okay. I think probably because I study it to death if you know what I mean mm. but at the time it was it it really was this kind of romantic -y sort of thing in my head um about it starts those sort of bigger questions about where we come from and why you know people and then when you think like for thousands of years we've been looking up uh, essentially the same sky I know it changes because well I'm not, I'm not getting to that side of things but essentially the same sky and then to think that a few thousand years ago you know the Romans or what have you were looking up at that as well wondering the same things that we wonder now is something that's always sort of more than fascinated me just blowing my mind and then when you sort of see it, it's, it's so it's such a part of our culture and it's such a part of many 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 cultures like from everyday sort of sayings that involve astronomy so one that was pointed I have this I have a real fascination with words and wordplay so I'm quite a nerdy person <laughs> but and so I like to find out things like the origins of phrases like red herring and things like that mm. and one that had never occurred to me was the expression by Jove which is Jovian and it's to do with Jupiter mm. and like I only learned this about a year ago and I, it never occurred to me and uh, and like the days of the weeks um, especially in other languages, I noticed this when I was studying French. So, um, like, Mercredi is named after Mercury. Uh, they do exist in English as well, of course, Sunday, the sun, Monday, the moon, Saturday, um, Saturn, things like that. Like, it just penetrates everything. And I just wanted to know where it came from. So, that, partly so that if anybody asked me, I could tell them, but also because it, it is quite important in our lives, whether we actually realise that or not. Mm. When you were a kid, um, what did you imagine being an astronomer would be like then? <laughs> not this. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, I think everyone of any age who's not actually a professional astronomer, and I don't really like to use that word, because, but you know what I mean, I think. Um, I think that... Professional? Or... Pardon? Yeah, professional. Yeah. Just Why? because, I don't know, because people sort of divide a professional and amateur, and I don't think they should be divided up because they've got different uses and areas okay. of expertise and which kind of comes from what I'm about to say I guess um yeah I think everyone thinks that we sit with our eyes like on an eyepiece all night looking at the stars and we kind of don't um you do sometimes so I think that um that's where people who have an interest outside of their careers actually do do that so I make a point of sort of getting involved in astronomy groups and stuff to keep my hand in so to speak and to know like what's in the night sky because what people always ask you is what's in the night sky tonight and a lot of astrophysicists astronomers um actually don't know <laughs> because that's not what we study we mm. study well personally i study galaxies and and large-scale structures so i don't really look at constellations and things like that i care about how the gas evolves and what this particle does and you know how the universe is expanding which is amazing and super cool but not probably what people think we do. So like most well, scientists, and I think a lot of careers these days, it, my uh, lab is my computer. Mm. I, I write a lot of code, I have a lot of data, um, and I run it. But that's not to say I don't observe, but when I go observing, which is one of the major perks of this job, um, so I get to go to all sorts of amazing far-flung places. Yes, you do get to sit near a telescope, but um, I have to kill the, the romantic image that you don't get to put your eyes anywhere near it. <laughs> like you're sitting in this huge room with computers beside a huge room with a huge telescope in it. But you do get to control it and stuff. So that, that's kind of fun. Yeah. So not quite as you imagined as a kid then? Not quite, but not a disappointment either. Mm, mm, okay. So you did, um, you did a degree in astrophysics at um, Edinburgh University and went on to do um, a PhD at the University of Victoria in Canada in extragalactic astrophysics. Yep. Can you please explain to me 
Well, I can sort of, I think I can kind of guess, but can you please explain to me what extragalactic astrophysics is? Yep. So extragalactic basically means outside of the galaxy. So when astronomers talk about the galaxy, they're talking about our galaxy, so the Milky Way. So it's an interchangeable kind of name. So extragalactic basically means studying anything out with the Milky Way. So if you want to really kind of go basic on it, it's stuff that's really, really big and really, really far away is usually what it means, um, which obviously comes with its challenges. So it's, it's, I think, quite clear that it would be easier to study things that are closer because they're brighter and we can see them. Um, so you have to overcome those challenges. But what is also quite useful is it's quite difficult to study the Milky Way because we're in it. Mm. So sort of, you kind of want to step outside of it and look back at the Milky Way to study it. So I don't actually look at the Milky Way itself, but I look at other galaxies that are quite similar to the Milky Way. And I also look, well, my PhD specifically was about looking at things that are much, much bigger than, than an individual galaxy. So you find that um, galaxies, they're not often on their own. They tend to be around other galaxies. So they can be, broadly speaking, in two sort of camps. So they can be in what we call a group environment. So groups are usually just about a dozen or so galaxies, uh, spirals, dwarfs, a few different bits and bobs, or they can be in clusters of galaxies. Clusters of galaxies are essentially the same, they're just a lot bigger and they can be of like thousands of galaxies. So the Milky Way, our galaxy, we're in, we're in a group and you know it's got the classically uh, unimaginative astronomy name of the local group. That is its official name because it's a, a group and, and local. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they do need to work on that a bit. So other galaxies nearby are Andromeda is, is the main one. That's our, our nearest neighbour and it's basically our twin. It's very, very similar. And there's a few others floating around. Um, and then we're part of a super cluster. So you can go out, you're basically scaling up. Mm. And the reason I, I want to, to study stuff like that is because we want to know what happens to a galaxy throughout its life. We're not 100% sure of what happens. You'll have seen probably images of the Milky Way or Andromeda, like I say, it's very similar. And there are those absolutely, uh, what I call coffee table like book images. They're beautiful, they're spectacular. And you see all the spiral arms and the stars and the colors of the gas, That's, the colors are, are, are highlighted, they're not real, but it is showing gas. And, and they're spectacular. That is a spiral galaxy. It's one type of galaxy. They generally are quite young. And because they're quite young, they're still forming stars. So they're very active. They're incredibly interesting to study. There's lots of motion. There's lots of stuff going on. The other sort of main type of galaxy that we have are called elliptical galaxies. Now, elliptical galaxies are kind of what it says on the tin, so to speak. They're just elliptical blobs in the night sky you don't you're probably not as familiar with them because they make incredibly boring pictures so they don't tend to make it onto the nice like books that you see but an elliptical galaxy is usually much older and they tend not to be forming stars they haven't got much gas which makes them pretty they don't have like these tight spiral arms and things but we think that one maybe evolved into the other um, we're not sure, we don't know if, you know if it's always going to be an elliptical, if stuff happens to it that makes it into an elliptical. And you can look at the environment that it's in to see what influence that has. So if you imagine, sorry, I can talk about this for days, but <laughs> if you imagine like a few galaxies, let's say half a dozen galaxies in a group together, they are gravitationally bound to one another. And so if you're setting aside any sort of overall expansions of the universe and things, they are attracted to one another. And they kind of, they can annoy each other for want of a better way of putting it. But they're moving, because there's only a few of them, they're not, they're moving quite slowly. Mm. So if they come close to each other, they don't sort of just fly past, like they might, they'll bash into each other and they might stick together and you might have a merging event. That is an incredibly exciting thing. You may or may not have heard about it. So a merging event, we think it's going to happen, in fact, we're, we're pretty sure it's going to happen between the Milky Way and Andromeda. Like, don't freak out or anything. It's not going to happen for about four and a half, five billion years. And we think that they're, going to, they're gradually going to come together and, and combine to form one. And when that happens, 
lots of the gas will get kicked out and so they stop forming stars and you basically are en you end up with what looks like one of the elliptical galaxies so you know that might be one process um if you're in a cluster so when i said clusters of galaxies have sort of thousands of them that means based on the physics that means that the galaxies within the cluster are moving very quickly they're moving quite fast so when they start to interact with one another they might not actually stick together because they're moving too quickly so instead of sticking together they just sort of bash off one another and that can knock gas out and change their appearance um i like talking about those that that has the kind of weirdest names in astronomy you probably also noticed that astronomers use some slightly bizarre names for stuff so in in clusters we talk about um galaxy harassment um we talk about cannibalism we talk about strangulation uh, there's a slightly weird theme going on um but yes yeah, so that's pretty much what what i studied at that time and, and still study at the moment i love some of these choices of words i mean very very human words and also very words that kind of make it on a kind of manageable scale like the, the, the kind of create kind of incredible to use the word local about anything yeah. galaxies. i mean the scale of what we're talking about is just extraordinary right oh, it's, it's mind-blowing actually on that note one of my favorite sort of facts if you will is that if you think of the milky way hmm. which is humongous so we're, you know, we're one planet around one star and billions of stars in one galaxy. And if you imagine Andromeda, which is about, about the same size, even when they merge, the, all these billion, literally billions of stars, the distance between the stars is so vast, the chances of a, one star hitting another star are basically zero. I, I can't get my head around that. I've never been able to get my head around that. I just think that's mad. <laughs> and that's just one, like you say, one nearby galaxy, one nearby star. We're not even going close to like leaving the galaxy. It's just, it's crazy. It's mad. And how many galaxies are there now that we know about? That we know about? Oh gosh. I don't think we've actually got like a long, like an actual list, but there's billions and billions and billions. In the universe, I take it, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, billions and billions and billions. Like, seriously unimaginable numbers <laughs> so plenty to keep you busy clearly mm. um, <laughs> never out of a job <laughs> but to bring it back to um uh, what we were talking about earlier uh, about myths and, uh, yep. and legends um you said that you'd um uh, spent quite a while in hawaii and i was really interested yeah. to hear more about that yes like this is one of my um perks of the job that i mentioned um yeah so it's there's Hawaii is one of the best observing spots on earth. It's, it's phenomenal. So if you've been, or if you just know a little bit about it, Hawaii is an archipelago of, of a few islands. Sure. The island that has the telescopes is the big island. That's what it's called because it's the biggest one. <laughs> and on, on the big island, there's two mountains. One's called Mauna Kea and one's called Mauna Loa. I've been up Mauna Kea quite a few times quite a lot actually. Mauna Kea is a volcano and at the top there are quite a number of different telescopes owned and operated by all different countries of the world and they operate at all different wavelengths because the conditions are so incredible up there. It's You're very high up. It's I can't remember the exact number but it's a little over 14,000 feet. Um, ben Nevis is about a little over 4,000 I think so it's, it's pretty high like you have to worry about altitude and acclimatization and things and it snows up there a lot which people find really weird on Hawaii um, and it, the conditions are, are phenomenal so yes we get to go up there quite a lot to observe but you have to be very respectful obviously you should be respectful at all times but Mauna Kea itself is actually it's sacred to the Hawaiian people the, the mountain is sacred um, for a whole number of um, reasons they've got all sorts of legends surrounding it and even if you kind of knew nothing about it, when you go up, the way it works is you drive up basically to, um, I think it's about nine, nine, 10,000 feet and they have a residence. And at that point, there's, there's a few buildings. There's not many. They have a visitor center actually, much like, kind of like the one at um, the observatory in Edinburgh or, you know, any of these, places, Greenwich, any of these places mm. for outreach stuff. And they also have... Um, like halls of residence, so places, uh, rooms to sleep in, you get a room to yourself. They are very much like halls of residence. <laughs> they're not particularly uh, nice, but they're not terrible. And you get um, like a canteen and a, there's a little library and, and, and a few other bits and bobs. 
and you stay there for a night or two to acclimatize to the altitude and then you drive of an evening you drive up to the actual summit so it's a good few thousand feet higher and you go up all night you're usually up there about good 16 hours it's pretty it's really grueling i get no sympathy for this from my family i might add when i moan about being in hawaii and how hard work it is so like yeah whatever <laughs> but it is you're up all night and it's freezing up there so i'm the only person or astronomers the only people that turn up at the airport in honolulu in like full-on snowboard winter clothes because you've got to go up a mountain <laughs> it's like it's quite funny but so yeah nobody that you can't just sort of willy-nilly drive up to the summit you're not allowed you have to have permission and it's like kind of government controlled and things mm. but when you're in the residence sometimes it's nice to go out during the day for a little walk even though you're meant to be sleeping um and you see there's there's monuments and sites and it's all fenced off like please don't go in here it's sacred and um don't traipse off this path because it's a sacred land which is incredibly fascinating but it's causing especially lately actually it's causing quite a few I don't use the, pro- the word problem because it makes it sound like I, I'm not, that I'm for the kind of telescope side of it, but it's causing a lot of controversy, shall we say, um, in terms of the telescopes. There is a, there's been a few sort of planning permission requests, for what of a better way of putting it, for a new telescope. So there's one called the 30 metre telescope that they're wanting to build up there. And the Hawaiians on the whole do not want this um, because it's going to be built on sacred land. Now, there's a lot of, I'm not going to get into the sort of politics of it, but there's a lot of things like when you build a telescope up there, you have to prove that when you decommission it, it'll be like it's never been there. Um, you know, you know, you don't destroy any land or things, but it is a sacred mountain and it's basically being leased from the Hawaiian people to the astronomers. And there are a lot of telescopes up there. And so there's been, there. I mean, there was a lot of major protests. I can't remember where it's at at the moment, but... It's, it's, it is a controversial issue that needs to be sort of addressed. And I mean, there's all sorts of environmental implications um, as well. So when you're up there, they have to ship everything, ships on word, truck everything up and down the water, up and down the mountain, like water. Water is so restricted, like in terms of showering, flushing the toilet, drink, like you, it all goes up and it all has to be taken back down as well. There's no infrastructure, uh, all waste, uh all food like everything has to come up and down the mountain things that you would never have even thought of like it's 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 a real um challenge for people and so and Mauna Loa is is similar the other mountain in Hawaii so yeah it is it is sacred land and it is being gifted from the Hawaiian people to astronomers so they have a massive link um there whether it's love or hate I'm not sure but there's definitely a link and, and what have you learned about um, the, the stories behind that that sacred um, uh, ground? I've learned just it's it's all about their sort of they have a beautiful way of looking at the world in Hawaii. I have a real affinity and soft spot for the Hawaiians um, and how they sort of view things. Like that, I remember learning about the word aloha. So everybody knows the word aloha, right? Mm-hmm. It's like. I just thought it meant kind of hello, but it, it doesn't. It, it means hello and it means goodbye, but it's also, it, it's a way of life that they have. Mm. Um, it's, it's like a sort of vibe, an attitude, like the aloha vibe. And it's about connecting with, it's their whole way is about connecting with the earth um, and sort of being hyper aware of the seasons and what is in the night sky and the flora and fauna and how it's all affected. And they have so many... Um, unique and native plants, for example, mm. that the it's 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 I'm a bit hesitant to use the word spiritual, but it is it is quite spiritual, mm. um, I would say. And yeah, I mean they've obviously got these incredibly clear skies, and they've they've formed their own sort of stories behind the stars and, and various events. It's quite it's quite beautiful. Have you met Hawaiian astronomers? Yeah, I have. Yeah, there are a few there. There's not maybe as many as you would think, but there's a lot of work at, on that to to improve, you know, to promote um, astronomy in Hawaii. Is sort of mm. weird as that might sound, but yeah, the, yeah, there are a fair few. So the main university, which is where astronomers tend to be based, the main university is in um, Honolulu. There is a number of offices. So you have the telescopes, but then all of the telescopes have offices based at sea level because it's not particularly healthy to work at altitude all the time. Mm. 
So you have offices there from um, the Gemini Telescopes, Keck, Canada, France, Hawaii, JCMT, like there's, there's a ton. Um, and they are very much international collaborations. There's a lot of Japanese telescopes up there, so there are a lot of Japanese. Actually, there's a lot of Japanese people in Hawaii anyway because of the geography of the, the place, um, given that the next stop is Japan, if you go over the Pacific. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of Hawaiian astronomers and like all astronomers, we tend to travel quite a lot. So there's a lot of Hawaiian astronomers outside of Hawaii as well. I suppose what I'm driving at is, 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 do you find when you're meeting astronomers from different parts of the world that there's a kind of connection between their own culture and the way and their perspective on astronomy, in in, in the way that you know you, you're growing up in Scotland has in, impacted on your own? I think there probably is, but I have to admit it's not something that's massively talked about. Okay. So I would say, like when I meet up, you know, back when we when we can travel and stuff when i met when i meet up with people at conferences and things you do tend to talk about science yeah sure um it, it's just sort of the natural way that things come up but i can't believe that it's not part of it sure sure okay what drew you to studying galaxies do you think <laughs> um good question there's i think i just find them really interesting i think it's one thing partly it was the um, when I did my master's, my supervisor at the time, uh, a woman in Edinburgh, she studied, well, she, she studied heavily the Milky Way and Andromeda, actually. So she was quite a big influence on me um, in terms of wanting to study galaxies. And she put me in touch with who became my supervisor in Canada. And he studied galaxies and it just kind of went from there. And I've got, I like to study things that kind of, I like to make my life a bit difficult sometimes. So it's like, oh, they're quite hard to, observe at high distances and things so I'm going to try and do that. When, when I google your name <laughs> well, some of the things that come up I've noticed are uh, articles about uh, women in astronomy and it made me wonder mm. what is the gender balance in astronomy like these days? I think it's slowly improving slowly. I think astronomy is better than pure physics certainly I think there are more I think there's a higher proportion of women in astronomy than mm. there is in say particle physics or stuff um, but it's definitely not where it should be. Um, there are a lack of women in all the STEM subjects. I think everyone would admit that. But it's sort of, I think there's a slightly slower knock-on effect. So I think things have been improving for a number of years, but in order to see that coming through, you know, with people starting to get jobs and things like that, I think it is a bit of a time delay. But yeah. And, and what can be done about that? What would help? That is the kind of, million dollar question really isn't it um there is a lot of people doing a lot of very good work on this so i know a lot of women and men that go into sort of grassroots if you will so into schools and scout groups and events and science fairs and things and talk about it actually raise it as an issue but not just that just having um having a woman talk to you as an astronomer i i, I get a bit not annoyed that's too strong but I don't like being called a woman astronomer I think that we'll know that we've done the right thing when I'm just called an astronomer like I don't want to be discriminated against because I'm a woman but I don't want it to be the reason yeah. that something happens either do you know what I mean so I just when we're all just kind of astronomers then then we've done our job but there's a huge amount of, of very very good work yeah. like you, like you say if you just google it so many, so many people are sort of trying to promote and encourage young girls to not to speak up like to do science it's, cool. it's okay to do science i was going to say it's cool but i'm not, <laughs> not sure it's cool but i don't think that applies to boys or girls but yeah certainly i think you have to get in there early at the sort of school age and show that look there are women doing it and here's you know all these amazing role models like people like helen sherman and the, the first women in, in space actually the first brit in space who happened to be a woman um yeah and, and events like like your event in in february um you know, I, I know that you've got female speakers and just inviting people and making, just being a bit more aware. One thing that I've noticed has definitely changed is when people organise conferences, uh, be they sort of um, popular science conferences or hardcore sort of uh, niche conferences, people very much look at the lists now of invite, invited speakers mm. to ensure that there is a balance. Um, between men and women because in the past honestly like I mean you could just look at a list and it, it would pretty much be all men 
but now there, there's a definitely even if it doesn't cause change there's certainly an awareness of it now but it is okay. causing change in my um, opinion definitely. one of the things you're working on at the moment is a new bbc science show i gather with, with brian cox mm. tell me about that yeah so one, yeah one of the cool things that i get to do with my job is um so i work at the open university and um, people of a certain age, and I want to point out that I'm not one of them, <laughs> may remember uh, uh, on channel, I think it was channel four, like about four or five in the morning. My mum used to be a tutor for the OU, so I used to remember her videoing these things mm. back in, and I do remember videos. Um, but yeah, four, like four in the morning on channel four, there would be all these science shows and they would be produced by the, the Open University. So there's a huge tie between the OU and the BBC. So I've managed to get um, involved in a number of projects so it's kind of cool so I was involved in the, the last one that was out last year which was The Planets so that was the show Brian Cox um, did about the solar system and I got to work on the episodes and the poster and the associated materials and stuff like that and it, it was it was brilliant it was so much fun uh, completely eye-opening I'd never really done I've done a few like media things but just you know interviews on the radio and stuff but never the sort of behind the scenes I had no idea how much work went into these things I was like oh, yeah, I can't, can't be that hard to make a tv series uh, I was I was quite wrong uh, and so that one that one was a huge success and then this year they're doing one in the universe um I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say about it but it's you know quite a big topic um so we've been working on that so again working on the episodes and sort of working on the poster that will come out with it and any sort of associated learning and yeah, it's, it's just, it's so different to my day job, if you will. It, and it's, it's great, great fun. I mean, it's, it seems like the kind of public engagement side of it is, is something that quite appeals to you. You're a very clear communicator in, in terms of getting things across simply and understandably. I mean, and, and that's not a gift that all astronomers have. Some astronomers I've met use this very dry technical language, and, but certainly not the case with you. I mean, that's something that, a, a part of the job that appeals to you. Yeah, definitely. I, actually, it was my job for a while. So before I started at the OU, I was at um, Hull University. And uh, I, was, I was employed as their kind of outreach person. Um, there, was a, there is a number of them around the country um, that work in different universities and um, research institutes. So I got to do that for a while and met like tons of people and got to do lots of outreach uh, work in, for everything from, like I said before, going to like the local brownies to going to the big bang science fairs or you know, some other national, um, national event, which was really great fun. Um, I really enjoyed working at Hull. There's some really great people doing some amazing outreach work outreach work there and like as well as the sort of gender thing one of the big things for me as well is this sort of socio-economic um misbalance uh, and that that was really really eye-opening i learned a lot doing that and i'm also on the council for the royal astronomical society so we get to do a lot of outreach work with them so every year they have <laughs> it's nicknamed NAM because of, it's an acronym, which always makes me giggle a little bit. It's like, oh, I'm going NAM. <laughs> yeah. But it's the National Astronomy Meeting. So they have it every year. This year, it didn't happen, but all, fingers crossed, all things being equal, it will be happening next year in the summer in Bath. And it moves around the country, the, the whole of the UK. And it's a huge meeting. It's everything from sort of quite heavy science, professional type stuff to dedicated outreach days, to um, public talks, like everyone's welcome. It's great fun. And it's, um, it's organised by the RAS and it's organised by the host university. Um, we have a dedicated woman at the RAS who does amazing outreach work, her and her, and her colleagues, a woman called Sheila and her colleague Rob, like they do massive amounts of work. And then we work with the folk in the Greenwich Observatory, they do tons, like there's a lot going on around the country in terms of of major outreach, like dedicated, you know, that's your full-time job, um, outreach. And these are, these are scientists that are, that are doing it. And, and then there's people like myself that do it for, for fun, really. <laughs> well, now I'm a veteran. Yeah, well, quite, yeah, in, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me about your um, Isle of Lewis connections. You've got family here, right? Yeah, so we've got some family um, on the northwest of that island which is it's always a joy to visit i'm a bit sadly not not at the moment but yeah so we we go up there or i go up there as as often as i can which is not nearly as often as i like um 
it's it's not that it's hard to get to it's just i live in cornwall and so it's about as, <laughs> about as far away as you can get in terms of, of being in britain but yeah and i'm also well the reason i live in cornwall is i'm a surfer and that is one of the reasons that i absolutely love <laughs> coming to lewis it, it's got some some beautiful beaches as everyone that's ever been knows um but yes i do i do like coming over to the to the island it's it's always incredibly relaxing spectacularly beautiful and even when it's chuck a rain it's it's a spe- well you know you're there it's a special yeah. place you were saying just before we started recording that that cornwall and lewis are quite similar in some ways which is not something i thought about before they are they're very similar not like we were talking about the weather so they're they're similar in the weather although it is a good 10 degrees warmer down here i'm sure mm. but i think they're quite similar in attitude as well like cornwall it's not an island but it well it kind of likes to think it's a bit of an island and it feels like a bit of an island sometimes because it's so far away like you're right down stuck out on the end there um and they've got very strong heritage here very celtic very and they're very proud of it and i think that the you know the hebrideans not just lewis but the islanders are um quite similar in that respect like they're quite proud of their culture and their heritage and they want to hold on to it and and they feel not separate to the rest of scotland but maybe, maybe a bit unique and it is unique. It's, it's not an easy way of life up there. Like my family are crofters and it's pretty punishing. And, and pretty punishing weather in, in, in Cornwall too, I gather. Absolutely battering at the moment, yeah. Um, I, uh, the kind of joke down here is it's like, you know, you see the weather and they're like, oh, there's a storm coming this week, storm, I don't know, Adrian or whatever. And we're like, storm Adrian, we just call that a Saturday. Like, <laughs> <laughs> when it's nice, it's lovely, but it's, it, well, yes, like I was saying to you, my window literally I, I can look out my window now and all I can see is the Atlantic Ocean and it's um, currently looking a little bit angry. <laughs> you, I gather you play various different musical instruments. Mm-hmm. My piano is my, my first my first love. I took that up when I was really wee. I was about four I think and we didn't have, um, I'm not from a wealthy background at all and my first piano was, uh, <laughs> my mum and dad had friends that were a prison warden and the prison that he worked in were getting rid of their piano. And he was like, do you want it? <laughs> so it got delivered to my house when I was about four by six, I believe, prisoners who were on some sort of day release type thing. And they delivered this piano and it was so old, so out of tune. It was covered in um, ring marks from whiskey glasses and stuff like that. And it was awesome. I learned on that piano for years and years and years until I was about... 16 I think I just had that piano and I got through all of my exams all of my conservatoire stuff when I was really young I was I was one of those super annoying kids um, and on that piano and I was so proud I did it on that piano um, and my mom and dad scraped together every penny they had to send me to lessons and my piano teacher was this lovely lady and I mean towards the end I don't think she was even charging my mom and dad to be honest but she had this beautiful walnut grand piano and I just, my heart used to melt when I got to play it. It was just amazing. Um, and so I do have a piano now, but I move around a lot. So I've got um, I've got an electric piano now because it's much, much more practical. Um, and then, yeah, when I was a kid at school, kind of classic Scottish thing, we got taught, I, I played the fiddle at every orchestra, Burns Night and, you know, Kayleigh you can think of, um, and the viola. Um, I play the clarinet and the guitar. And I recently um, took up the cello, <laughs> much to my neighbour's uh, annoyance, probably. But yeah, like I say, my mum's like, oh, we'll get you some cymbals for your knees and, and away you go. <laughs> it was a very hard choice between astronomy and music as a career, very hard. I, I was going to ask that. Is, is there a version of your life when that could have gone in this very different direction? Mm-hmm. So right up to, to the last minute, um, I left school early because I, was, um, I got my qualifications really early. Um, and right up and went to I went straight to uni but right up until that point I I really was considering doing music but what it came down to for me was I love music like I I really love it and I didn't want it to become the thing that I had to earn a living from Mm. and I didn't want to become a music teacher and I know many many extremely talented musicians that are music teachers because it's the only way they can make money and it's not that they don't enjoy it, but it was not what they set out to do. Mm. And it be- 
and I just didn't want it to become a chore. And I, I figured that if I did astronomy as a career, it would be, it's pretty easy to have music as my hobby. But trying to do music as a career, I wasn't sure how that would tie in with having astronomy as a hobby. Mm. And, and that was honestly, I mean, we're talking like filling out the UCAS form type decision. <laughs> like it was right down to the wire. Um, and I, I thought about it long and hard and I don't regret my decision. I think I, for me, it was the right decision. Do you ever get opportunities to combine the two things? People try. Um, I, I, the, well, on the other hand, I should probably say this, the other big thing that put me off music is I am incredibly shy. Um, I don't like playing in front of people, which I figured I could probably overcome, but it was a little bit of a hurdle. Mm. Um, I have had people contact or, or sort of, you know, those conversations you have in the pub, like, wouldn't it be cool to do this type of thing? Yeah. Like write a piece of music based on... You know, inspired by the aurora or um actually there was somebody at work not so long ago we were putting together um some videos so nothing to do with the the virus and stuff the open university is largely a, a distance learning place yeah. so a lot of our a lot of our stuff is online anyway and we were putting together some videos for a module we were doing and it was um we were showing our telescopes and things like that and we we're like oh wouldn't it be super cool to commission a piece of music to go with this and they were like you play don't you and I was like yeah but that's not happening so it, it does it does kind of come up every so often but I, I don't think I'm I wouldn't like to think I was good enough to do that but maybe maybe one day who knows I channel my inner hold <laughs> it can be interesting to compare those two worlds though we, we had um, uh, an event at the Dark Skies Festival um, the, the last one we did where Chris Lintot um, <laughs> from the sky I know Chris yeah, um, yeah um, I imagine you do. It's a small world. You'll you'll know. It is very small. Yep. Um, Chris Lintot uh, did a, a show called Universe of Music with a musician friend of his called Steve Pretty, where the the idea is that Chris tries to explain astrophysics to Steve. <laughs> Steve tries to explain music to Chris, <laughs> and it works remarkably well. Actually, you find these yeah. interesting little common points you know in, in terms of the rules of music and the rules of astronomy. And I, I wonder. So I wondered. I suppose if if you're if your life as a musician gives you a particular perspective on astronomy in any ways, or if you, if you spot kind of connecting threads ever. I think there definitely are. There's certainly a lot of um, threads in the arts in general with science, but massively astronomy. I mean, there's, there's festivals about the arts and sciences come together. I mean, you just yeah. have to look at paintings and, and, and all the influences there. And, and like I was sort of being flippant earlier about Holst, but I mean, you know, there's a whole yeah. suite of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, one thing you do find often is that scientists are often musicians in, the, in their spare time. And a lot of it, I don't know the exact reason, but my thinking and a lot of people's thinking is that you have a very certain sort of brain when you're a scientist. Like you work with numbers and you work in a very certain logical kind of way. And when music is like that, like there's set ways of reading music. Um, there's a definite way of thinking about it and putting things together. And I think that you have to have that type of brain. I think maybe there's a limit, like, I don't know if you're sort I don't want to say stifled, but you, I think with real creativity, you have to really let go. And maybe scientists struggle to do that sometimes, but there are a huge number of scientists that are very accomplished musicians and very accomplished artists and um, uh, singers and, and all sorts of things like it, it, there's definitely a link and it must be something to do with the way the way your brain works I don't know left left brain right brain that sort of thing but yeah there's a there's a lot of um I've come across quite a few events that have been trying to tie together the arts and the science the arts and the sciences um, and I've heard some really funny uh, interesting talks on like the sounds of space and things like that. Like people don't, don't tend to think about what space sounds like, yeah. uh, which, which I've always found really interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole thoughts and whole thought process on that and the smells of space and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, that's the a good smell, one. The smells of space. Yeah, nothing. yeah, that, that's a non, not particularly pleasant one at times. Like, yeah, there's a, there's quite a few jokes in there. I'll not I'll not make them, uh, I'll not make them here. But uh, yeah, space certain parts of space don't smell particularly pleasant uh we made a bunch of uh, the OU, we made a bunch of like scratch and sniff cards so you know those kind of like trading cards you get with facts yeah. Yeah. so this was certain facts about some of the planets and stuff and it's like based on what we know 
is in the atmosphere of these planets, like what chemicals are in the atmosphere. Well, chemicals, certain chemicals have certain smells. So sulfur, for example, not yeah, yeah. Uh, ammonia is a delightful one. So we made, we made all these scratch cards, um, but I, I took them to an outreach event. And for some reason, I didn't sort of think it through and I just stuck them all in my bag not in a plastic bag or anything, just like in my handbag. And it just stunk. It, like I actually had to get rid of it. It just, every time I opened my bag, like on the bus or something, people were like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was a lesson learned, shall we say. Yeah. What's that smell? It's okay, I'm an astronomer. Yeah, yeah. No, don't worry, it's, it's sulfur, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine, it's from space. Yeah, it was uh, quite, uh, yeah, I'm not going to make that mistake again. But, but to, to kind of bring it back to the arts economy thing, I mean, that, that, that's um, a big theme, obviously, of, of the Hebrides Dark Sky Festival. It's, yes. it's, unusually, it's, a, it's a, an astronomy, or, or partly an astronomy festival, but it's run by an arts centre. So I'm, I'm always very interested in these connections between um, the arts and astronomy as, as, as ways of thinking yeah. and ways of telling stories. And um, Well, I mean, the storytelling thing, of course. I mean, if you look at, well, how these myths, like these really old myths and legends all over the world. Like I say, everyone from uh, Aboriginal folk in the Southern Hemisphere to Mayans to Incans to uh, the Norse, it was storytelling, right? Like they weren't tweeting about it. Like they were passing it on around the campfire to one another. And, and that's how they all got handed down. So the reason that we still call the constellations Ursa Major and, you know, Canis and and, and well, Andromeda, names like that, is because it was handed down over thousands of years from, from the Greeks or, or what have you, which to my mind is exactly what storytelling is. Like mm. my, my lovely image of astronomy still, and I still like to do this, is to sit around outside with a, with a fire and you're sharing stories and maybe having a wee dram or two, but you're, you're talking, you're, you're, you're not writing it down, you're not Googling it, you're, you're sharing it with people. And that is what, well, to me, those are the types of things I, I remember. Yeah. Uh, I want to share. Like, it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole human characteristic. Like, it's a beautiful thing we want to share with people. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I don't think you can, I don't think you can uh, distinguish between sort of art and culture and science. I mean, astron physics used to be called natural philosophy. You can't disentangle philosophy and, and science. You just can't. Like, you can have some mental conversations. It's it's great. <laughs> so, so in a sense, what you do as an astronomer is the form of storytelling, right? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think that's. I've never heard it put like that actually, but I think, I think a lot of that is true. And and we're trying to tell the ultimate story, really. Um, what's going on in the universe? Mm. I, I was just thinking of some of the language you were using earlier around you know, galaxies harassing each other or yeah, yeah. Galaxies yeah. merging or bumping into each other and, and behaving in ways that seem quite human. You do find a lot of, um, yeah, you do find a lot of sort of humanising um, anthropomorph anthropomorphism goes, a lot, goes on in astronomy, especially when communicating it. But I don't, <clears throat> I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And I don't think it's, I think it's kind of unavoidable in a lot of ways. Like, astronomy is so mad you know, we were just talking about the crazy big numbers, mm. like completely unfathomable numbers, like trillions of galaxies and things, that if we, we can't as humans even attempt to understand things that we can't visualise, which is why we struggle with a lot of concepts, like what do you mean there was nothing before the Big Bang or singularities? Like you can't picture it, so you can't really, you can accept it, mm. you can't really understand it. So I think that we absolutely grapple, grapple around to try and relate it on a human level as much as we possibly can. So if we can talk about these crazy big things that we call galaxies merging or harassing, if we can sort of picture maybe two people in a street mm. bumping into each other, then our brains can kind of cope with it. Otherwise it's just like, no, 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 can't cope with this. Nope, nope. <laughs> I, it, it's fascinating to me that... that in astronomy terms, you, you are dealing with things on kind of almost the biggest scale possible. You know, there, there are astronomers yep. who, who study the sun or, or the moon with particular planets and, and you are, you know, the, you know, the big, big scale stuff. I mean, do, mm -hmm. does it ever just feel kind of overwhelming? Mm -hmm. <laughs> very, very regularly. Um, this is, like I say, for, for me, I think I speak for quite a few people as well, is that it comes to the point where I, I wouldn't claim to understand it because I don't think anyone can claim to actually understand it. 
but I can accept it. So I can I can kind of detach it in a way. So like I can say, like I was saying there, right? You know, the Big Bang or space-time continuums or you know wormholes and like this is crazy stuff. Like absolutely crazy. It doesn't sit well in the in the human mind at all. But I can go, okay, I'll accept it because yeah. if I won't, then I'll never make any progress at all whatsoever. But yeah, I do sometimes wonder <laughs> about some friends and colleagues. Like, I'm like, God, how do you even cope when you go to like, you know, you think about this all day and then you think, right, I'm going to go to the supermarket and get something for my tea. Yeah. And like standing in the supermarket going, I've just spent the whole day trying to model the universe. And now I'm trying to decide whether to have a cheese sandwich or an egg one for me. You know, it's like, ah. Um, but it, it's, it's good. And that's why I really like events and outreach as well, because it really does for whatever kind of better way of putting it, it keeps it real. Mm. Like it grounds you a bit and it stops you just going completely bonkers. Like when you have to explain it to someone in a way that you think they're going to understand, it brings it kind of back a bit. It reins you in a little bit. Yeah. But you've got to have those bonkers ideas because otherwise, you know, the best ideas are bonkers, let's be honest. Well, on that note, thank you so much for trying to explain it to me. <laughs> and I'm not someone with any great deal of an astronomical knowledge um but this has been fascinating thanks it's been really fun you've been listening to campfire conversations part of the 2021 hebridean dark skies festival which takes place at anlanta on the isle of lewis as well as online throughout february the festival is supported by caledonian mcbrain an outer hebrides leader in partnership with callanish visitor center loose castle college uhi stornoway astronomical society and Gallon Head Community Trust. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with The Scotsman and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website, www.lanter.com.